Hey friends, welcome to God on Tap, and as always, I'm Nika Spaulding, and today we are pressing on in the book of Lamentations, and we're going to look at the entire chapter four. Um, it's a little bit shorter than the other chapters, and I could break it up into two, but I, I think it it's kind of a fun whole chapter, because I think the the tone of the chapter from start to finish really matches. And so we're going to look at all of Lamentations chapter four today. So this is uh, this is chapter four. How has gold turned dull? How tarnished finest gold? The sacred gems spilled out at the corner of each street. Zion's precious children worth their weight in gold. How are they reckoned as earthenware jars, the work of the potter's hands? Even jackals offer the breast. They suckle their own cubs. My people's daughter is now ruthless as ostriches in the desert. The suckling tongue has cleaved to his palate out of thirst. Babes ask for bread. None offers it to them. They who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. They who were reared on purple embrace the refuse heaps. And the crime of my people's daughter is greater than the offense of Sodom that was overturned in a moment and no hands were laid on her. Her elite were purer than snow and they were whiter than milk. Their limbs were ruddier than coral. Sapphire was their body. Their mien is darker than black. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones, become as dry as wood. Better the slain of the sword than the slain by famine. For those who run through ooze blood more than the crop of the field. The hands of the compassionate women cooked their own children. They became nourishment for them in the shattering of my people's daughter. The Lord has spent his fury, poured out his smoldering wrath, and lit a fire in Zion, and her foundations it consumed. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor all the world's dwellers, that a foe and enemy would enter the gates of Jerusalem because of her prophets' offenses, the crimes of her priests, who shed in her midst the blood of the just the blind wandered through the streets, became so foul with blood that none could touch their garb. Turn away, you unclean, they called to them. Turn away, turn away, do not touch. So they flew off, they wandered. It was said in the nations, they shall dwell no more. The Lord's presence has set them apart. No more shall one look on them. They showed no favor to the priests, no mercy to the elders. Our eyes still pine for our vain hope in our hope that we harbored from a nation that cannot rescue. They stalked our steps to block walking through the streets. Our end drew near, our days played out, for our end has had come. Swifter were our pursuers than the eagles of the heavens. On the mountains they raced after us, in the desert they ambushed us. Our very life breath, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their traps, of whom we had said, in his shade, we shall live among the nations." Exult and rejoice, Edom's daughter, you who dwell in the land of Uz. To you as well shall the cup pass on. You shall be drunk and naked be. Your guilt is done with Zion's daughter. He no more shall exile you. He makes a reckoning of your guilt, Edom's daughter. Your offenses he expose. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, in chapter four, we have moved on from um, our strongman speaker, and we have two new voices, so to speak. There's one's communal and one's uh, a singular voice. But I want to tell y'all, like when I when I first heard that my sister 
had died, I immediately packed up and I went to Oklahoma to spend time with my family and took care of all this stuff that you have to take care of. Um, you know, cleaning out her possessions and coordinating a funeral and coordinating burial and, and dealing with just, there's just a lot to deal with. There's just so much, you know, when a, when a person is gone, it just takes so much work. And that was really the role that I played in my family. And so, I mean, I wept every night. I grieved so hard that my physical body was in so much pain. Like I had like physical pain. Like even now when I think about it, my back tightens up because I just, I felt so much pain and grief and sadness, but I was also in, in go mode. I mean, I was also like, Hey, stuff has to get done and I'm gonna have to go back to Texas soon where I'm from. And so I'm going to have to like do all of this now in the midst of that. My parents also moved, which was kind of weird and bonkers. And then as y'all know, I love my nieces and nephew more than life itself. So I was playing the role of like aunt, counselor, daughter, sister, and executor of a stake and all these things. So when I finally got back to Texas and two weeks after, you know, my whole life had been turned upside down, I finally finally got back here. Y'all know what I did almost every day? I just slept. I just slept. And I slept. And most days I would only get out of bed to go work out and maybe spend some time with my roommates or good friends, try to do something productive. But I was just so exhausted. Like grief is exhausting, y'all. It wears you out. And that is the tone of Lamentations chapter four. And so I'll try to explain this. So one, we have the identified narr- unidentified narrator in verses one through 16. It's probably not the narrator that we remember from chapters one or yeah, chapters one and two. That narrator moved from cool distance to like emotionally involved. And this person is back to cool distance. Um, but then after verse 16 and verse 17 through 22, we have the people. We finally have all of Jerusalem, the, the people collectively speaking out. But if you'll notice, it's a shortened chapter. So in chapters one and two, I talked about how there was, uh, you know, one verse per letter. So you had, you know, Olive, Bait, Gimel, Dalit, but each of those verses was three lines long. Well, then you get to chapter three, and now it's an intensified acrostic so that each letter has three lines that start with that letter. So the intensity goes up, but because each, each letter has three lines, it's the same length as the first two chapters. And once we get to chapter four, it's only two lines per letter. It's as if like, we're just exhausted. And so it's a much shorter one. And at no point in here do they appeal to God. And if you'll notice, it's just about things are just dim. They're just, they've just grown dim. It's just like it even says, like, how can gold grow dim? And so it's this much shorter, not as passionate. I mean, it's still, it's still brutal. I mean, you're still reading through this. And you're like, really? Did you read the words? Yes, I did. But the whole point is, is this is such a... It's, it's like we've gotten past the extreme language. Now, we're going to explode in chapter 5, which is also part of the grieving process. And we're going to talk about how chaos and the spilling over can happen. But it's as if we're walking through the grief of lamentations. We've got the chaos of chapter 1. We've got the chaos of chapter 2. We've got the chaos and the hope of chapter 3. And then we get to chapter 4 and we're just like, ugh. I mean, it's a lot of the same ideas even that we've already heard. It's like not even that much new material except at the very end. And so this is what we're going to look at. So verses 1 through 10 is all about everything just growing dim. Okay, even the gold has grown dim. Even your your princes have grown dim. Your suckling tongues are not, there's nothing to suckle there. Everything has gone bad. And then verses 11 through 16 talks about why this happened. 
Okay, and then we're going to talk about verses 17 through 20. It's a retelling of the invasion. So it's now the people. So the people's voice pick up and they're like, let us tell you what it was like for us. You've heard from daughter Zion. You've heard from these narrators. You've heard from the strong man. Now we, the people, are speaking up about what the invasion was like. And then in verses 21 through 22, I call that trash talking Edom. And it's my favorite part of Lamentations. And we'll talk about why this is in there. So verses 1 through 10, like I said, everything is growing dim. If you notice, you have this, uh, we go back to this idea of cannibalism among the moms. Like, did they in fact eat their babies and it is very graphic language and I'm going to remind you all what I told you earlier there are some commentators who think maybe that's what happened I don't think that's what happened I I just I don't think that's what literally happened instead when God talks in Deuteronomy like we've talked about of what blessings will look like if you walk with him and what curses will look like I believe that those curses were meant to be hyperbolic in order to remind the people of like how drastically bad it would be for them if they rebelled from God. But I don't think it's a literal thing. I think there's a lot of hyperbole in the scriptures. But that's the point is if you're trying to talk about, okay, this is how bad it is. It's pretty bad. I mean, it's not, you know, gold growing dim, which by the way is nearly impossible, if not impossible. So the whole point is, is like, how bad can something be? Well, gold has grown dim. Well, that's not possible. Exactly. That's how bad it is. That's the point. And then how bad is it? Yeah, moms are boiling their babies. And again, I'm uncomfortable. I go back to I'm uncomfortable even saying that out loud, which is why I don't think it literally happened, but it is a picture of just how bleak everything has gone dim. Then our narrator goes on, and much like the narrator the first time, he's like, yeah, you guys know why this happened to you? Because you had bad priests and you had bad prophets. And it talks about how they let the blood of the just, in other translations as righteous, run. Okay, so blood is this thing that makes priests impure. They they should not be touching blood. And if they do, there's a process by which they can go through to cleanse themselves. We talked about being clean and unclean isn't necessarily a moral thing. It's not a bad thing. But if you're in a state of uncleanliness and you don't do anything to restore yourself to a, to a place of cleanliness, especially when you're a priest, it just means that you're just giving God the middle finger. And so this is a reminder, if you guys want to know why this happened to you, now, there's multifaceted reasons why this happened. But it is interesting that twice in the Lamentations, the blame falls squarely on the leaders, the priests and the prophets, those who are meant to be the ones who can see. And instead he calls them blind. He says they're blind and they're roaming the streets and they cannot lead. And it's another reminder, we talked about this yesterday, God is always cleaning his own house first. And the expectation are for those who proclaim to be the religious leaders, there's a higher expectation for them. So was there rebellion on multiple levels? Yes, of course there was. But is the reminder that we're going to talk about the priests and prophets multiple times an indication of just how serious their sin was? Absolutely. And why? Because they're the ones leading the people. So if your leaders are corrupt, no wonder your entire nation is corrupt because your leaders are the ones that are supposed to be setting the example. They're trained. They've been called out by God. They have special jobs. The New Testament says it like this, not many should presume to be teachers for they will be judged harshly, like more harshly, okay? And so this idea that like, if you're going to call yourself a pastor, a priest, a prophet, if you're going to call yourself someone who's a religious leader, then you need to understand that walking with God in integrity it's kind of the ball game. It like matters more than your gifts, more than your talents, more than your ability to produce. It's do you walk faithfully with God? And the narrator just very blithely is like, mm, yeah, they weren't. This is why this happened. You have bad priests and prophets. 
Then we get a point of view, or at least we get the narrator switches to the communal voice of the people in verses 17 through 20, and they retell the invasion. And they just basically say what we would expect. Like, we get enough information already in Lamentations that if I were to be like, oh, this is what I think probably happened. But again, they use this really emotive picture language. It's not like this literal thing, but it's like, man, they swooped in all around us. They were faster than eagles. They, they chased us up the mountains. And then this one really, it, like, spectacular line, and it, it says, our very life breath, the Lord's anointed, which is a special phrase for the kings that God anoints in from the lineage of King David. It says, they were captured in their traps. And then this is of whom we've said, in his shade we shall live among the nations. So that last line, that verse 20, what the people are saying is, look, we remember 2 Samuel 7. When God goes to David, he's like, David, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make your house great. I'm going to give you a kingdom. I'm going to give you a house. I'm going to make your name. One of your sons is going to sit on the throne forever. It's like incredible, right? Because at this point, Israel's had one king already, Saul, butthead. And he's already like, God's like, "Mm, yeah, that's not my guy. And so then he sends his prophet out to Jesse and he's like, bring me all your sons. And there's this little rinky-dink little shepherd boy who likes to play the ukulele or whatever it is he plays. And God's like, yeah, that's the one. Everybody's like, are you sure? Have you seen the guy? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Y'all look at the appearance. I look at the heart. The ukulele guy, I know it's not a ukulele, but go with me here. He's my king. That's my dude. And so David goes out to war before he's even, like, ready. Like, he can't he can even lift the armor. And remember, he goes and gets the five stones, and then Goliath's, like, talking trash about Yahweh. And David's like, how dare you, sir? And, the, and he knocks Goliath in the head and then cuts his head off, right? And then what happens? Saul, Saul does not particularly love David as time goes on because he gets super uber jealous, right? That's, that's our David. And so God's like, hey, David, you're my dude, and your kids are going to sit on the throne forever. And so when the people recall just how bad it is from Babylon, they can talk about anything they want, right? They can, they can be like, man, our houses are turned upside down. Our fine linen has footprints on them. You wouldn't believe what they did to our crops. They killed our children. But what, what creates a gasp for them, one of the things that they point out is that this thing they probably took for granted, they're multiple generations in at this point. They are multiple generations in at this point. David would have been around 1000 BC, 950 BC, kind of in that area. And you're now at 586. So you've got multiple kings that have been sitting on the throne at this point. And they think it's forever. Now, it will be forever because of King Jesus. But again, that's me relieving tension. So let's go back. But the point is, is like this thing that I'm sure the people, because they said, oh, we sit under God's wings. Like, we're, we're special, special. We're going to be just fine. They have to reconcile with the fact that, no, you're not, because you guys continue to rebel. Now, are God's promises true? And do we find in Christ the yes and amen of them? Of course. Of course. But you can imagine just how disheartening it is for the people when they're like, man, even our king is gone. The king that we, that we thought Yahweh was going to keep on his throne forever. And then verses 21 to 22, it's my absolute favorite part. I just call it trash talking Edom. So if you remember, Edom are the people that came out of, ja- out of Esau. So there was Jacob and Esau brothers. Jacob's a turd. I cannot stand him. If you ever heard me talk about Jacob, I know when I get to heaven, I'm be like, bro, thank goodness for sanctification. We're good, fam. But if I met him in his Genesis, early Genesis days, I would probably flick him on his forehead. So Jacob wrongs Esau. Esau is also kind of a dummy. And so they're, they're both idiots. 
So Esau and Jacob end up separating as brothers and they never fully reconcile at the end. It's kind of bonkers. And then they grow up and Jacob has his 12 sons. That, of course, becomes a nation of Israel. And then, of course, Israel and Judah. And then Jacob or Esau's family becomes the Edomites. And the Edomites, during Babylon coming in and taking out Judah and and Jerusalem, we don't know exactly what happens, but we know because of the book of Obadiah, that the Edomites dealt treacherously with Israel and with Judah. Like we know that Edom, we know this from the book of Acts. We know this from the book of Obadiah. So Obadiah is an entire, it's the shortest book in the Old Testament. So it's not like when I say like entire book, it's, it's not that long, but it's a whole book dedicated to prophecies about Edom. And the whole book is like, hey, we know that you dealt wrongly with people that should have been your brothers. Okay, you are down the line related to each other, and yet you dealt treacherously with them. And so in verses 21 and 22, the people in 17 through 20 are like, yeah, the invasion, it was super bad. It was really bad. But it's almost as if they look over and they see Adam sn- Edom snickering, and they're like, okay, Edom, okay, go ahead, celebrate. <laughs> because guess what? The days of our suffering are going to be over, and you're going to drink the same stinking cup that we drink. Don't you think for one second that Yahweh, Father Yahweh, Abba Father Yahweh, is not going to come and deal with you the same way. And I am living for this trash talk. I love it. I love that it was preserved in scripture. But it. But I also want to point out, there's like this belief in the people, or at least an imagination, that the situation that they're in is not going to last forever. And in fact, they trust that God's character is such that Edom will be dealt with because of her treachery. And that's exactly what Obadiah says. It's exactly what Amos says. And so what's our big so what for us in this? Well, one, grief is exhausting. So if you're loving someone who's going through grief and they're a half step, nay, 10 steps, nay, 100 steps behind who they used to be, that's normal. That's normal. And chances are you're probably not demanding much of them, but they may be demanding too much of themselves. And so just know that in seasons of grief, you got to you gotta pull back. You got to take it down a notch. You got to just downshift into a different gear. I don't know if that's the right metaphor. Does that mean more power? I don't know. Essentially, you just got to go a little bit slower. Take it a little bit easier. Let people help you because you're going to be tired because grieving itself is just exhausting. And then you still have to do life. You still got to get out of bed. You still got to like, care for people. You got to do your job. You got to show up in this world. And you don't have to show up in this world as Wonder Woman and, and Mighty Mouse and Captain America, but but you have to show up. And so be gracious with yourself and be gracious with others who are going through grief because it is exhausting. And then the second, so what? It's just, I just love that God kept trash talking the Bible. I just think that's super dope. And I'm like, eat them. <laughs> So if you want to know what God says more explicitly in Edom, go check out the book of Obadiah. You can read it literally in five minutes and you can be like, yeah, I I read a whole book of the Bible today. So, all right, friends, if nobody's told you that they love you, I do. But way more importantly, the God of the universe is crazy about you. Peace.